0: Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot .org. You can do this for as little as fifty a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now onto what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. I had released premium several months back an episode titled Gone Of the Day. I it went free on May first. And, and I had kind of forgotten about it. And so I listened to it on the morning of May 2nd. Today's May 3rd. I listened on, listened to it yesterday morning. And I listened to it and where I'm at today, I just didn't like the tone of it. And so I, uh, I ended up just pulling it and, and knowing that I needed to convey those thoughts. They're thoughts that I need to say. They're thoughts that I want to get across. But I needed to do it with a different tone. I needed to do it in some other way. And so I hope that uh, folks will forgive me if you did have a chance to listen to that and we're hoping to share it and do things with it, but I just need to, I need to vent some of my feelings, but I need to do it with a different approach. And so with that, let me, um let me just kind of go in that. The, what, what happened is this. I'm really over the last few months, like there's been this roller coaster ride with Mormonism. My feelings stem back to the beginning of the year in January When we started our new Sunday school curriculum, and for the first time ever, right, the church is saying, like, our history is a little messy, and we want to start talking about it. So they put in these LDS.org gospel topic essays, and they put in the revelations in context, and vocally they're saying, let's use this stuff. But they're in the manual in a way that unless a teacher knows about this stuff and wants to go into it, it's, it's kind of an afterthought. It's kind of supplementary and, and it's kind of on the periphery and, and no teacher really is, is, needs to use it. Nor do they feel like it needs to be used. It's just kind of this extra thing on the, on the outside of the lesson, man. You know, in the lesson for sure, but outside the main, the main conversation. But I went in naive. I went into the first class thinking like this is going to go really well. Like we're going to have a really good conversation. And so one of the first lessons, one of the early lessons of the year was was on the first vision. And I go into class and I'm just like ready, like, wow, exciting. We're going to talk about the first vision and we're going to talk about the 1832 account. And I can't wait. And the teacher, he's a, he's a great teacher and he doesn't really use the manual, but for whatever reason, you could sense throughout the lesson that while he said his lesson was on the first vision His lesson had nothing to do with the first vision. And then he gets to the end of class and he says um, something like, there are multiple accounts of the first vision. I've read them all. Nobody needs to worry about it. There's no contradictions. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing, you know, nothing here to look at. And he, and he kind of ends and I raise my hand and he calls on me and I tried with the 30 seconds at the end of class that I had to kind of create at least a little bit of space that there was something, there's something to those four First Vision accounts. They are different. There's there's ways to explain those differences, but that we, we ought to know these accounts better and that the 1832 account is the earliest in Joseph's personal journal. But I leave class really frustrated. And I go off to priesthood, and in priesthood there's a conversation about prop aid and and how that's from God, and and again it was just such a such a harsh lesson. I just didn't feel connected to the divine in either of those two hours, and so I went home and I was just mad, I was angry, just frustrated, and it, and it got me thinking about all the stuff that's going on, and and I should I should applaud the brethren, like literally I should have just applaud the brethren, and I mean this seriously, right? Because What they've done is, is they've walked into this situation. They didn't, they didn't create this mess, right? They weren't around when Joseph Fielding Smith was hiding the 1832 account of the first vision, right? They weren't there when Brigham Young decided because of the racism in his, in his culture to, to keep those of color from having priesthood and from going to the temple. They weren't there when Bruce R. McConkie wrote Mormon doctrine and said the Catholic was the great and abominable church. They weren't there when when the book of Abraham papyri comes forth in the 60s and the church approaches it a certain way, like they weren't there. They inherited this, right? It's like we're sitting at a game of Texas Hold'em and somebody's got a two, a five, a seven, a nine, and a and a, a three, right? And they walk away from the table and, and Elder Holland and the other 14 top leaders walk into the table and that's the hand they inherit. And so there's their hand and, the, and their hand is just horrible, right? And so they, they just they they didn't ask for this and here it is it's on their plate they come into the church at a time when the history is as messy as it is it it could get like everybody who's reading realizes like this stuff doesn't add up and they don't know and they're trying to figure out what to do with it and so i applaud them because they put out the essays and the essays are a first step and they they couch those essays nobody signs off on them they're just there and and they're not really easy to find or locate they're just there so that the, the members who are aware of the mess know they're there and everybody else has a, and then you begin to have little comments about these essays and, and then all of a sudden it's put in, in the lesson material, but it's, it's kind of, a backdrop to the main portion of the lesson. And so you can see the leaders beginning to try and say like, we've got to get this into the mainstream conversation, but we're not going to do it fast. We're not going to do it quickly because there's a lot of risk in doing it that. So we're going to move this stuff into the mainstream of the culture really slowly. And I, and like, I'm, I'm, I'm with them. Like, I don't know. I don't know that doing it fast is the right thing. It's the right thing for me. It's the right thing for you. The right thing for the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, and probably hundreds and hundreds of thousands of members who who realize that something's not right, and we want to have a real conversation about it. And in the meantime, in Sunday school classes, while there's a large chunk of the class who who appreciate the things I say in my Sunday school, there's also a large chunk of the class who don't want to hear it, and there's a few in the class who feel like they're watchmen's on the tower. And they feel their responsibility is to raise their hand and to object to anything I say. No matter how factual, no matter who I'm quoting. And and let me be clear, like I'm not, I'm not a dummy. When I go into class and I raise my hand and I want to put forth a diverse view, what I do is is I share a quote from a leader that says the thing I want to say. And even with that, I get this resistance. And this resistance sucks because I know the data's on my side. I know that rationale and logic is on my side. And I know that sounds arrogant to somebody who's uh, an orthodox believer, that for me to claim, like, I know I'm right and I know you're wrong, like, that's arrogant. I get it. But I'm saying, like, the data is on my side. And I'll hold that. I'll hold that ground. And, and what begins to bother me is how... All across the church, teachers in the church are avoiding utilizing the material, right? The brethren have said, here it is. And I get it. They've done it really subtly, really subtly. But on the other hand, part of our cultural belief, part of our theology is to follow the brethren, right? And the brethren have said, here's the material. Let's use it. So let's follow the brethren. Everywhere, all across the church, teachers and members sense there's something in those essays that's problematic. They don't want to read them. They don't want to go looking for them. Some, some members have even labeled them anti. I've heard one person who got some publicity claim that critics of the church somehow infiltrated the church's website and put the essays there. Like, like let's stop being silly here. The church created the essays. The essays have been signed off on by the brethren and they're there and they're now being requested of us to utilize them in our in our lesson, but they're essentially ignored. They're couched as these resources in a way that just, again, have them as peripheral material because there's only a, you know, so much time in a class and so much stuff to cover in the main portion of the lesson. How dare I step away from the main portion of the lesson and spend, you know, a chunk of my class time on this? And so while we publicly encouraged the teachers to use it, we framed it as a fringe supplementary material that if we get to great, but it's not necessary and most teachers are not. So in my ward, I make this effort to be vocal about diverse views, right? I try it really hard to, to share like these other perspectives that nobody really thinks about that Mormonism in some ways claims a space for. And it bothers the heck out of me that while we claim to be a church of truth seekers, right? Like we pride ourselves in being better than the world because we love truth. And yet generally we much more prefer our comfortable stories. As a culture, we seem to sense there is something to what the critics are saying, right? When a, when a class member says something different, when a class member says something unique, and if it pushes against our, our comfortable story, we, we go into defense mode. We become a watchman on the tower. I wanna, I wanna start off by reading Marlon Jensen. I wanna begin to kind of set up Like the instruction the leaders have given us. So Elder Jensen, a long time ago, multiple years ago now at this point, just it still feels like it's not that long ago, but it's been years. Marlon Jensen said often in the church when someone comes in with a bit of a prickly question, he'll be met with a bishop who, number one, doesn't know the answer. Number two, he snaps and says, get in line. And don't question the prophet. And get back and do your home teaching. And that isn't helpful in most cases. So we need to educate our leaders better. To be sympathetic and empathetic. And to draw out these people. Where they are coming from. And what's brought them to the point they are at. What they have read. What they are thinking is. And try to understand them. Sometimes that alone is enough to help someone through a hard time. But beyond that, I think we really need to figure out a way to live a little bit. With people who may never get comfortable. Like hear that. Like for the listener, hear that. Like what is he saying? He's saying that it is time for us to have real conversation and to sit back and not defend our position. Like to be open to hearing the other person's side of their experience. Like, like let me hear your experience and I'm not gonna let my comfortable beliefs get in the way of keeping me from hearing you. Like let's have real conversation where real understanding happens. Brene Brown talks about sympathy versus empathy. Marlon Jensen mentions both. She she relates it to a hole, like you're in this deep hole and you've been there for hours and hours and you feel like you're stuck in there and you don't know how to get out. And, and when somebody walks by the hole and just looks down at you and goes, oh, that's got to really suck. That has to be awful. I'm really sorry that you have to go through that. That's sympathy. Empathy is so different. Empathy is to climb down in the hole with that person. Just just climb right down there and stand next to them and look up and look around and just feel. Feel what they're feeling. Like hear them. Like tell me, how did you get here? How long have you been here? What's that been like? Just to try to understand somebody where they're at. And and the trouble is people who are going through a faith crisis, they've been in the position of being the the true believer and having everything fit and be beautiful. Those folks know what the other side feels like and thinks. What what we need is for those who are the, the true believer, we need you to understand where we're at. Like you haven't been here. You haven't gone through this. You haven't read this stuff. You haven't tried to make sense of it. You haven't prayed for hours and days and weeks on end asking for God to make this fit again. You haven't fasted. Some people have talked to me and said, Bill, I've fasted for weeks, drinking, drinking water at the end of the day, a cup of water, and then fasting for another day. And then, and then four days into my two week fast, I start to get sick. Like, people want this to go back together. People want this to fit again. They want this more than anything. Elder Stephen Snow, who replaced, uh, Elder Marlon Jensen as church historian, he's the current church historian. And Stephen Snow does an interview with with Blair Hodges from the Maxwell Institute. And in that interview, uh, Blair asked a question along the lines of um, asking about the church's increasing openness with regard to history. And Elder Stephen Snow said, quote, "...my view is that being open about our history solves a whole lot more problems than it creates. We might not have all the answers." But if we are open, and we now have pretty remarkable transparency, then I think in the long run, that will serve us well. I think in the past there was a tendency to keep a lot of the records closed, or at least not give access to information. But the world has changed in the last generation, with the access to information on the internet. We can't continue that pattern. I think we need to continue to be more open. So hear that, right? In the past, we were not very transparent. In the past, we kept a lot of records closed and did not give access to, because we could, because there was no internet. We could, we could hide. And I get like that word has a negative connotation, but that's what's going on. And yes, maybe the church saw their motive as protecting, but what they did was they withheld and hid information so that the members of the church could not on their own find these problems, at least not easily. And he says we need to get better, meaning that we're not fully transparent even today. There are still things that we keep and withhold. We have to be better. We have to do what Elder Snow is saying. We have to be better. We have to be more transparent. Elder Holland in his talk, Lord I Believe, talked about how belief is a precious word and an even more precious act. And that, and that the person he was speaking of, but let's talk about all of us generally, none of us need never apologize for only believing. Like we're beginning to say like in our culture, we have got to be accepting of something less than knowing, something less than certainty. And I, and from my side of my perspective on my side of, of, of the mountain looking at it, Like, certainty has got us in so much trouble. And Elder Christofferson, in his talk, The Doctrine of Christ, said that at the same time it should be remembered that not every statement made by a church leader, past or present, necessarily constitutes doctrine. It's commonly understood in the church. Think about that. It is commonly understood in the church. My question would be, is it? That a statement made by one leader on a single occasion often represents a personal, though well-considered opinion, not meant to be official or binding on the whole. What he's saying is it is not commonly understood, but we're going to establish it right now so that going forward, from here on out, it is commonly understood. He goes on to say that a statement made by one leader, though well thought out, is not binding on the church. That a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such. And when he says a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such, he's not talking about Uh, a local leader. He's not even talking about the Quorum of the Twelve or even the counselors in the First Presidency. He is saying that even all the way to the top of the church, that a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such. And in the context of his talk, he is making space. Elder Anderson, only six months later, in the Next General Conference, in his talk, uh, Trial of Our Faith, Trial of Your Faith maybe is what it's called, And in that talk, Elder Anderson says that our doctrine is not hard to find. It's what all 15 men teach. But but that's a problem because our doctrine is hard to find. Try to ask any church leader who tells you our doctrine is not hard to find to get a pen or pencil out and write down on a piece of paper, and list our doctrine. What is our doctrine? And and the very doctrines we would write down today and say, these are our doctrine. Was that the way those leaders believed it and framed it and taught it 50 years ago? 100 years ago? And, and are there things that all 15 members taught? For instance, all of the church leaders from the 1940s taught things that today's leaders have disavowed as racist theories. And those leaders in the past, they framed them as doctrine. Elder Uchtdorf acknowledged that some of our dear members struggle for years with the question whether they should separate themselves from. Like this is not an easy thing, guys. This isn't fun. This isn't, this isn't enjoyable. Like when someone one day just believes it all and it all fits so well and the next day they just realize that none of this fits. Their life is in turmoil. It hurts. There is pain. There is crying. There's depression. There's, there's this effort To get it all back, to put it all back together. And the further you dig, the more you slide down the rabbit hole. And the further you go down the rabbit hole, the more you realize this rabbit hole just keeps on going. This brings me to Elder Ballard's talk, uh, where he gives the goner of the day's quote. The talk was titled, The Opportunities and Responsibilities of CES Teachers in the 21st Century. Elder Ballard, early on in the talk, says, quote, Gone are the days when a student asked an honest question and a teacher responded, don't worry about it. Gone are the days when a student raised a sincere concern and a teacher bore his or her testimony as a response intended to avoid the issue, unquote. Do you hear Elder Ballard here? He's saying to the CES teachers, gone are the days, folks, that we bear testimony or tell people not to worry about it. In other words, gone are the days... That we distance ourselves from having to deal with the repercussions of the answers to the tough questions somebody's asking. Like when somebody asks a tough question, we can no longer distance ourselves from the question and bear testimony as if that solves the problem. It doesn't. Gone are the days that we tell another member, don't worry about it. Because that is offensive and it doesn't work. He's saying we have to know answers. We have to know the material. He even goes on in this talk to say that these teachers need to know the essays like the back of their hand. Here's the struggle. Is he only talking to the CES teachers? Or is it fair to say, is it fair to say, like, gone are the days that a leader of the church can bear testimony to someone's serious question and concern As a way to avoid it. Is it fair to say gone are the days that a leader can say don't worry about it? Because if I step back and I listen. For instance when Elder Anderson said give Brother Joseph a break. What that felt like was don't worry about it. And I don't want to hear don't worry about it. There are very serious concerns in the behavior and life of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Can we talk about it? Instead of you saying, give Joseph a break, like let's just stop and let's just have a conversation about what I perceive as the unhealthiness in the life of Joseph Smith and, and you address that. The other issue is that in many ways, like the system is broke. Elder Ballard seems to be indicating to local leaders in a talk that he gave to southern Utah, as well as in this talk to the ces teachers like gone are the days that we don't sit with people and have an honest vulnerable conversation with them in the in the conversation in the uh, in the address he gave to southern utah he he makes the comment something along the lines of like if we if we treat someone with serious concerns and questions as faithless like we're we're out of bounds like we're we're inappropriate But here's the trouble. If I go to my bishop with a serious and valid concern, if my bishop sees the concern as valid and is also willing to take the risk of having his loyalty questioned, he can take that concern to the stake president. If the stake president finds my concern valid and is willing to take the risk of having his loyalty questioned, he can take that concern to an area authority. If the area authority finds that concern valid, and is willing to take the risk of having his loyalty questioned, he can take that to the area presidency. If the area presidency finds that concern valid and is willing to take the risk of having their loyalty questioned, they can take that concern to the Quorum of the Twelve. If the Quorum of the Twelve then have the concern and find it valid, it can then be handed off to the First Presidency or dealt with at their level. Now the question becomes, how many concerns, regardless, let's just assume that that we take a hundred concerns and they are really valid. They are seriously valid they speak to the deep unhealthiness within our religion. How many of those concerns make it to the Quorum of the Twelve, and how many of those get addressed? In other words, if there's not a system in place where real, valid concerns of behaviors we have in the church that hurt and harm and cause trauma to the children of our Father in Heaven, if those concerns have a, a, a only a slight chance of making it all the way up to the ladder, all the way up the ladder to be addressed where a church-wide correction of policies and behaviors can occur, then the system is broke. And so if I write the First Presidency or I write the Quorum of the Twelve, my messages get sent to my stake president. If I go to my bishop and have concerns, and my bishop's awesome and yet I still highly doubt he's going to go to my state president. And I highly doubt that he's going to go to the area authority. And I highly doubt he's going to go to the area presidency. And I highly doubt he's going to go to the Quorum of the Twelve. And yet if somebody wants to sit down with me and say, Bill, we would love it if you would write your questions down. And think about it. Wouldn't this be a healthier way? Like I go to my bishop and I say, Bishop, I have serious concerns and serious questions. Are, are you ready? Are you ready to sit with me? have empathy with me, put your arm around me and try to understand where I'm coming from. Yes, Brother Real, I would love to do that. Let's set some time aside and let's talk. Okay, we do it. Now, Bishop, here's my questions. Here's my concerns. Let me number them out. Let me make a list of 10. Now imagine if we lived in a church where the Bishop, number one, heard that concern without any risk of shame to the member who brought them and any risk to that member that he was going to be punished for those thoughts. Now imagine that as he voices those concerns, that bishop looks him in the eye and says, I don't have very good answers for these questions. Would you mind giving me a week so that I can go home and I can study these questions and I can look up the information And I can try to get back to you with good answers. And that bishop comes back a week later and he says, I didn't find good answers to some of these. Here's a couple of answers I thought were sufficient. Are they the most reasonable answer? Let's talk about that. If they're not the most reasonable answer, is it plausible enough? Is it reasonable enough that we could exercise faith? If it's not, then can I have another week? Because I'm going to go to the stake president and I'm going to present these questions to him. And then a week later, the state president calls you in with love and kindness and says, Brother Real, Bishop so-and-so gave me your questions. I've spent a week with these. Here's some of the answers I have for some of them. Are they sufficient? Are they reasonable? Are they plausible? Let's talk about that. And for the ones that, that you and I, as we're having a conversation, we sense there's just not a good answer for, then would you give me another week? And I'm going to go to the area authority. And we're going to see if we can't get answers to your questions. And that process worked that way until somebody comes to you and says, brother real, we don't have great answers for some of these questions. Here's other answers that we have and, and, and they might not be as reasonable as the ones the critics have come up with, but we're calling on you to have faith. Like, wouldn't that be a beautiful exchange? Patrick Mason in his talk last year at Fair, said that we've loaded too much into the truth cart. And he says it's that leaders have done us no favor in loading more into the truth cart than that truth cart could bear. And that we sense that the fruit in that in that truth cart, some of it is rotting and it stinks and we just have to dump it. And he says, we're going to have to be humble enough to be willing to dump some of those things out of the truth cart. That's Patrick Mason. Is there a healthier way for us to have these conversations? Is there a better way in which we can do this thing? Can we teach our leaders not to be defensive, not to build walls around their beliefs that may or may not be true, that we can just sit and have vulnerable conversations about the data, the history, the narrative, the theology, the doctrine. And, and when someone brings a concern, we can say, like, I just want to hear your concern. I'm willing to give space within me that your concern's valid, and that it's going to need to be addressed. Let's talk about it. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't that be like a, just such a healthy, open, incredible way to handle these conversations? Let's go now to Marlon Jensen. This was an interview from years ago, where, where Brother Jensen, who was the church historian, he was a member, I think, of the first quorum of the seventy where he speaks to like where our church has to get to and the way in which it needs to frame itself. Here's Marlon Jensen.
1: I think there's a a greater two way street developing between Mormon scholars who are members of the church and Mormon scholars who are not members of the church. I think it's important for us when we write from the church's perspective to not be in an apologetic mode but to be as open and candid and fair about our own history as we can i think when we are open to the conclusions and the views of others uh, in the historical community about mormonism and about joseph smith then they're certainly going to be more open to our views as well so i see really greater dialogue coming about less suspicion a, a greater openness that is coming to pass and i think the papers are going to be brought forth in that kind of a culture.
0: Like, did we hear that? Did we hear that? He wants, he wants, he's saying the church needs to have less suspicion, greater openness, open to the views and conclusions of others, right? That we don't need to be apologetic. That we, that we need to be open and fair and candid. Is the church, do they appear to be applying these? Are they doing better? Yes. Are they applying these in a way that, that it feels like this is acceptable? Like I don't know. Like I, like, like my gut says no, but like I'm open to someone like having a conversation. Is the church open? Is it fair? Is it candid? Do, are the essays apologetic? Cause they're saying like as we go forward, we need to not take an apologetic approach. We just need to put the data out there and talk openly about it. That we need to be open to the views and conclusions of others, including our critics. That there needs to be less suspicion and greater openness. Like, are we there yet? Like, are we getting there? It feels like it. Is it as fast as I would like? No. How do we get to a place where when we look at the honest questions and the concerns that are being raised, how do we? How can we be open to real truth-seeking to the point that we give a vulnerable space to making the changes that are needed at the expense of our comfort? If the data at all angles leads us to dumping pieces and parts of the truth cart, then are we willing to have a real conversation about doing so? If those pieces in the truth cart are absurd to have, and more than that, they're hurting others, then all the faster we should be willing to dump it. Even if our certainty and our comfort are sacrificed in the experience. Recently, there was a, a woman, a sister in the church. Who, who made a comment on a, on a discussion board and somebody uh, reached out and, and was praising the, the comment that she made and, and a lot of people jumped in and made comments and, and she, you know, we had, there was a tag sent out to, to Gina Colvin and to myself. If there was any way to use this comment. And so I just messaged this, this sister back and said, consider it done. And, uh, and I posted the, the message to my Facebook page. And I'd like to share that right now. And so here is, uh, here's the words of that sister. My real dilemma comes when the church holds tightly to its need to be correct, its need to be consistent, and its need to claim unchangeable doctrine despite mistakes, inconsistencies, and doctrines that change. The churches rolled out essays containing statements that will be surprising to members. They did so without any acknowledgement that this information is new and or contradicts past curriculum. They put forth essays containing information that in the past would have only been available in the anti-Mormon literature. They told members not to read and expect members to accept it as if it had been available all along and as if it is consistent with previous teachings." The subtle message to members is this. Information we previously told you was anti-Mormon, we are now telling you is true. We are not going to explain why we misled you in the past. We are not going to apologize for our error. Even though you now realize that you lied to others because you trusted us, we take no responsibility. Still, we expect you to trust us now and in the future. And we expect you to be honest in your dealings. The method in which the church released these essays, without any acknowledgement that they contain information different than what they taught and asked members to teach, feels like a type of mental and spiritual abuse. The fact that these essays have been released without giving extra training and help to bishops and gospel doctrine teachers seems unwise at best and unethical at worst. The church has presented these essays in a way that implies members should be okay with this new information. If a person is confused, the implication is that something is wrong with the member, not the information or the way it was presented. The reality is that this is traumatic information for many people. Many feel lied to by the church. The church has completely placed the burden of reconciling this information on the shoulders of its people while it maintains a stance that there is nothing to reconcile. And this burden will continue with our current curriculum, with these essays silently inserted week after week. This is why I feel I cannot go to church. It's not that I'm not willing to help bear the burden I am, but I cannot do so without acknowledging the trauma many people feel, without acknowledging the inconsistencies in the message of church leadership, and without grieving my own loss and ability to fully trust what's on the church's website. People are not leaving the church because of problems with church history. They are leaving because of issues of trust. They are leaving because they were taught one thing in their youth and are being told something completely different now, with the expectation that they can continue believing that nothing has changed. Most people cannot do that in a way that maintains integrity, let alone sanity. And I just want to say, like, I agree with so much, so much of what she said. And, and I think it needs to be said. And I think there needs to be a place at the table where, where members of the church who feel like there's an unhealthiness here can be heard and can speak up and can voice their mind and can share what their concerns are without any risk of shame, any risk of punishment. And I hope we can get to that place. I want to finish off with a correspondence I had with a leader. And And I should say, right, that that in an effort to edit the tone of this episode, I also took some liberty with the wording of the correspondence I had with that leader. The general gist of what I said to him and the questions I asked are essentially the same, but there has been some editing done to this conversation so as to be more in line with the tone that I wanted to present today uh, to the listeners. So here's my email to this leader. And I should say, at first, uh, I reached out to this leader. This leader wrote me back, and then this was my follow-up response. Thank you for your kind response, I said. I appreciate your hopefulness and faith. I then assured him that I would keep his side of the conversation confidential. Can I start with a quote from Elder Ballard? I wrote, quote, Gone are the days when a student asked an honest question and a teacher responded, don't worry about it. Gone are the days when a student raised a sincere concern and a teacher bore his or her testimony as a response intended to avoid the issue. I hope you understand that someone has to engage those of us who are losing faith in the church. If the church is true, then its leaders need not fear Open conversation and discussion. What does it say that any time we are vulnerable and willing to discuss the tough issues that people generally lose faith, and what does it say that we essentially sidestep or avoid altogether the tough issues and stay away from entering a public conversation around them? I and others find it terribly distressing that leaders say that questions are honored, and that we as a church should seek to provide good answers but then it appears that leadership seemingly avoids ever having discussion around those questions. So with that said, let me present perspectives I have come to that I find to be based on truth-seeking and a willingness to accept new truth, even if it displaces my comfortable beliefs. I am hopeful you would be willing to share two things. Number one, if you think the evidence is stronger on the faithful side than the perspective I am sharing— I would welcome an awareness that my perspectives are simply ignorant of some data that is out there. And if not, number two, why you still choose to side against the most reasonable perspective. Lastly, I'm hoping you can offer what a person like me who has arrived at said perspectives can do to be authentic and honest to my truth seeking and still have a safe place within the church. Could you please at least do that for another brother in Christ? Please do not give one general answer, as it feels like someone who's dodging the questions. Please tackle these specifically, even if that means you say, yep, the critical side has the better answer, but I still choose faith. This would mean the world to me, and I think such candidness would help a lot of people stay. My biggest issue, as I have stated, is that church leaders are on record saying that questions are honored, And have said that we should not be afraid of our history, but at the same time, leaders seemingly avoid actually honoring the questions by being vulnerable to them, and they seem to hesitate actually engaging the questions in our history. It comes off feeling to those members who are hurting as insincere, and appears that an awareness exists with our leaders that our history really is problematic. And that if a frank and honest discussion were to actually occur on the tough issues, that people would see through the apologetics and the, quote, just have faith, unquote, and see things really don't add up. In other words, those struggling are picking up on the fact that leadership does not seem to want to talk about the problematic issues directly. And such avoidance seems to indicate an awareness that these are deeply problematic So with that, here are my beliefs and my follow-up questions. Number one, I don't believe in a global flood. The evidence is so strong against it in my mind that it makes absolutely no sense for me when I take in the logistical problems. Problems with a global flood number in the hundreds, if not thousands. The apologists offer a local flood as an answer, but there are two problems with that. One problem is in Third Nephi, where the resurrected Jesus speaks of the flood as global. The second is no one in any official channel has ever offered doctrinal space to take the flood as something less than a literal global flood. Do you agree a global flood is unreasonable? And if so, how can I reconcile that with Jesus in Third Nephi? And where is the theological room to turn much of scripture into a non-literal interpretation in spite of the church imposing a literal view? Number two, the Tower of Babel. A tower 4,500 years ago where all languages split from is absurd to me when I validate the scholarship on languages tens of thousands of years ago and how they dispersed and changed. To believe a literal tower where one language changed to many for me is impossible. This problem is increased when the Book of Mormon people speak of the same event and yet both sets of people separated just after that very event, leaving little room for any distortion. The apologetic answer is that Mormon and Moroni inserted the highly embellished story into the Jaredite narrative after the fact, as they would have had the Tower story and simply saw something on the Jaredite plates that led them to believe it was this event, and so they inserted it. I don't find that to be a very reasonable explanation. Do you? And if not, how am I to reconcile that? Number three, are you aware of biblical studies on the authorship of the four gospels that we gather about the historical Jesus? Are you aware of just how much Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John contradict each other? Are you aware the nativity story by scholarship standards likely did not occur, and that Matthew and Luke's nativity narratives contradict each other and without major mental gymnastics cannot be meshed? Do you agree with the evidence that it... Do you agree that the evidence is compelling that we see this very different, in spite of the Book of Mormon sharing of pieces of the Nativity narrative? Do you agree that the Herod killing of the firstborn likely didn't occur in spite of us holding that account in our narrative? If you are aware of this stuff, how do you reconcile it? And if you can't, why choose a different perspective that goes against it? Am I to ignore that data at every turn? Number four, for me, the implausible absurdness of some of the stories. Jaredite barges with corks, the mention of windows being dashed to pieces before the invention of glass, hand-to-hand combat with armies in the millions that pose supply problems, and not to mention battles of inexperienced youth armies of 2,000 stripling warriors fighting a bigger, stronger, more experienced army with no life lost with many of these soldiers having wounds and major loss of blood and yet no infections and a rather quick recovery and back off to battle they go. Again, I am aware of the, apolog- the apologetic arguments on these. I am simply asking what am I to do when my brain tells me these events being a historical account is absurd and the apologetic responses seem Almost as unlikely. Am I wrong to think such absurd? And if you agree these stories are implausible, how do you suggest I reconstruct my paradigm to allow me to be a faithful Mormon while also being honest to my search for truth? Number five, the book of Abraham. You are certainly aware of the argument. I will simply say Joseph got so much wrong and even the two hits are not really hits and there is no solution to this conundrum that has a reasonable answer, at least for me. Do you agree each and every reconciliation has deep issues? And yes, I'm aware of the tactic to ignore the translation issues and focus on the end result, the scripture itself. How is an informed Latter-day Saint supposed to work through such without just letting Occam's razor take its course? Do you acknowledge there exists no good answer on the translation? And if you disagree, what is that perspective? You answered the one on prophets, which we would simply agree to disagree. I hope in these men as prophets, and I sustain them as such. But intellectually, it is it is a problematic struggle, full of contradictions and disappointment. Prophets, who generation after generation tell us the race ban is God's will, only to have later leaders disavow such as a racist policy. Young gay kids taking their lives, while a church leader proclaims this policy, which has and is leading to deaths, to be a revelation. While at the same time, the very prophet who received the revelation says nothing about his revelation to the world. Fifteen men who we sustain as special witnesses, who proclaim to us to know the will of God, admitting that past leaders struggled to discern the will of God and erred on things that cause great harm and trauma to segments of God's children. Leaders who seem unwilling to tackle tough questions or say sorry for deep wrongs. To have a prophet in 1886, John Taylor, who receives a revelation in the first-person voice of Christ, only to have the church and its prophet four short years later go 100% contrary to that revelation and dismiss it as not binding and to completely set it aside. Brigham Young and those who followed teaching, they knew by revelation that Adam was God, the father and Elohim was heavenly grandfather only to have later leaders say Brigham Young taught false doctrine and yet expect us to have confidence that we are teaching true doctrine. Now to recognize these men seem to be always reactive and 40 years late to social progress on almost every major social issue, and that these leaders always seem reluctant to leave any real space for themselves to be wrong. Again, I honor your reliance on faith, but I hope you see the depth of issues here to a person such as I. How can I be honest to my truth-seeking and awareness of the problems, and still hold room that these men truly are something more than human beings? rather than just humans leading a man-made entity? How do I interpret what a prophet is in a way that it can be reconciled with the data and with the historical experience and with my own eyes and my own ears and my own heart? Number seven, Deuterol Isaiah or Third Isaiah. I'm not sure if you're aware of this conundrum, but again, I know the apologetic response. But as LDS scholar David Bacavoy argues, it simply is not the most reasonable answer, and it isn't in my mind either. Do you simply not see 3rd Isaiah as a reliable perspective? And if by chance you do, how do you account for the Book of Mormon having Isaiah chapters in it, not written till after Lehi left Jerusalem? Number 8. Why have a Book of Mormon written to Lamanites when we no longer know who a Lamanite is? For 200 years, part of the church's mission was to take the gospel to the Lamanites. We told several cultures they were Lamanites, the Polynesians, other islanders, Samoans, Hawaiians, Mexicans, and Native Americans. And now we say we don't know who is a Lamanite and who isn't with any confidence. Meanwhile, the book of scripture we have says we need to take the gospel to them. Can we say sorry to these cultures for changing their identity you see the shame and harm in that, right? Will we stand up before the church and acknowledge we missed the mark? And correct this so every member hears that for him or her to perpetuate such ideas is false and wrong? To have sidetracked their identity and not publicly retract such teachings, in light of our current stance, seems almost unethical, doesn't it? Number 9. Joseph breaking the very rules God sets forth in section 132 Additional wives must have the first wife's approval. They must be unmarried and must be virgins. He breaks all three. And then the polygamy of those after Joseph was so abusive, sexist, and sadly involved inappropriate relationships with young teenage girls. Lucy Bigelow was 16 when Brigham Young was 45 and they got married. Emma Smoot was 15 when Wilford Woodruff at the age of 46 married her. Sarah, Ephraimina was 15, when Lorenzo Snow at 57 married her. Yes, I understand the apologetic responses, but they feel deep in my gut to be unsatisfactory. Here's a rhetorical question for you, but be honest with your own heart. Knowing what you know, would you let your daughter at the age of 14 serve as a housekeeper in Joseph Smith's home at the Mansion House in Nauvoo in 1842? I highly doubt your answer would be a confident yes. And if in your heart it is a no, as I believe your answer to be, then you and I both know that such either means you lack faith or you know with confidence he wasn't trustworthy to have your daughter work in his home. Number 10, Joseph's treasure digging. Don't you find it odd That before God unfolds his plan with buried plates in a hill protected by a guardian angel and has a tool to see what others can't see, that Joseph is treasure digging, looking for gold and silver treasure, buried in hills, including the Palmyra Drumlin, protected by guardian spirits and using a tool that allows him to see what others can't see? I hear Bushman's response that this prepared him, but I hope you would agree that this is the less likely of the two perspectives. Here's bonus question number 11. How does Moroni go from wherever the Book of Mormon took place? Central America, the Ohio, New York region. You take your pick. Carrying plates, carrying the Sword of Laban, carrying the Urim and Thummim. And then he travels all the way out to Manti, Utah to bless the temple site. And then back to Palmyra to bury the plates. How does he even make the first half of that journey? The logistics of this journey alone are implausible. They're absurd. These are real, sincere perspectives I've arrived at. If the Church refuses to speak to the honest seeker of truth and give them space to arrive at honest and sincere truth and still be an authentic, fully fellowshipped Mormon, then what? For me, then, all is lost. There are hundreds of these and when we see them in their totality, they leave a person such as I to simply say that within my mind this doesn't hold up, that intellectually this doesn't add up. I move forward in faith, but carry every day the cognitive awareness that the data imposes that I am clinging to threads. And for one who wants to be honest to the search for truth, both by study and by faith, How do I simply ignore these issues and cling to a narrative that runs 100% counter to my intellect? It is not like the evidence is only slightly on the problematic side for me. Rather, I see the evidence so strongly on the problematic side that it would be either dishonest or I would have to choose to pretend it is something it isn't. Please hear me. I want to be Mormon. I want this to be true. Folks can dismiss me and others in this space as insincere and simply brush our questions off. But I am begging for someone to honor my questions and to not dodge them. People are so deeply hurt by the church avoiding a real conversation and people have their very identities crumble from this paradigm shift. People are hurting. I am hurting. I'm begging you with all of my soul to be vulnerable and be real with me. So with all this said... This is not about tricking you into admitting the church is not true. Rather, how does one who is dying inside to make this all fit reconcile the truth they have arrived at honestly and still see the church giving them space to stay and to be honest to their search? Until you and others can comfortably stand up and truly engage such a conversation, the church will continue to bleed and that bleeding will only grow. No whitewashed essays, no putting this off on CES teachers, no pretending there are good answers but refusing to give them will suffice. The only real solution that hopefully can occur is the church can begin to honestly show that it truly does value truth, that it truly honors Joseph Smith's quote, that Mormonism is truth, that wherever truth is, it will make space for it. How is the church going to make space for the old false narrative to die? and to make room for the new narrative in a way that honors those who are in the church right now, in this very moment, and are being hurt by the old narrative. Up to this very moment, the church has placed the blame for a faith crisis on the backs of the members who have lost belief. It is taught that faith is less than certainty, that doubts are something bad that good members don't bring to the table that the responsibility for a loss of faith falls on the member who lost it. Do you not naturally see that the church has at least a significant portion of accountability in why these losses of faith occurred? False faith-promoting stories in the manuals, failing to tell its members the details of Joseph's polygamy, the avoidance of having an honest discussion about just how wrong prophets can be, the hiding of first vision accounts, the failure to tell us these men had taught false doctrine in the past, I could go on and on. Why can't the church take at least some responsibility for those of our faith who have experienced this pain and loss and betrayal? And can you see when the church won't take responsibility, it makes it impossible for the individual to move towards rebuilding trust. Can the church make a safe space for non-literal belief? Not that it has to advocate for it, But it permits folks to hold such and not be marginalized. Can the church make room for honest discussions and safe space for tough questions? Can we ever get to a place where church leaders not only say there are good answers, but they actually show such by having a conversation or or at that point at least stand up and say, yeah, there aren't good answers to some of these questions? How can we ever get there if the most empathetic folks choose to avoid these tough conversations? If the folks like you avoid them, then all hope is lost that any church leader will be vulnerable and authentic to the struggle of so many Latter-day Saints in the very here and now. Real vulnerability necessitates a real conversation. It involves shadow work. It involves you answering the questions I've asked and not answering the ones you wish I had. I await your response. Your friend in the Christ of faith, Bill Real. And so with that said, let me just share that, that kind of in conclusion, I truly believe gone are the days. But for that to truly be the case, then church leaders have to start with their own words and behaviors, speaking about the complexity of our history and making real legitimate space for people to hold different views and not be marginalized in their wards and stakes. It's my prayer that we can do that. It's my prayer that we can have real conversations where people are allowed to hold perspectives in ground that is different than the majority in their ward and stake. And it's only when those those perspectives are honored, when their questions are honored, and when we stop trying to distance ourselves from people's questions and concerns with testimony or just have faith. Can we actually make progress in this church and become something that our Father in Heaven would be deeply proud of? It's my prayer. That that space will happen, and it will happen soon. Because people are dying inside over this. People are losing their families, they are losing their identities, and some of them are even taking their lives. It's my hope that Mormonism can truly honor Joseph Smith's quote, that Mormonism is truth and that it will open itself up to making the changes necessary to honestly reflect where the data takes us. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, may the Lord warm your shoulders. Amen.